0: Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you are put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if, in fact, we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you, Chesney and everybody. Great stuff today. Years ago, in an un, a moment of uncertainty, I asked my mom. Mom, was I adopted? And with love in her eyes, she looked at me and she said, son, yes, but they brought you back. That story may or may not be true, anyway <laughs> uh, we are going to use the language of adoption today, and uh, adoptions happen they happen all over this place, and it is a beautiful thing now I, I use that language in full recognition that there have been times when adoption has been a painful thing for various and sundry reasons. But having had an adoption happen within my nuclear family growing up, I want you to know and And I want you to know that in this text today, this this concept of adoption is only positive. And beyond that, not only is it positive, it is godly. So whatever your experience of adoption might have been or might be, if at any sense you understand it to be a a negative or a painful thing, I'm super sorry about that. And And we will continue to ache with you and pray with you through whatever season this is that you are in. All of that said, when we use the language of adoption today, it is a really good thing. It is a really good thing. Because at the end of the day, everybody, we're all adopted. We're all adopted. You see, there are a couple different ways to go about this faith thing. In fact, uh, there are lots of different ways to go about this, this faith thing. And we are... Uh, part of a tradition that sets aside an entire Sunday to say, here's how we understand God and here's how we go about this faith thing. It is Trinity Sunday. We are a Trinitarian denomination. And what you really need to know is this, that Trinitarian concept there is everything for us. It undergirds everything that we think and believe about God, everything that we think and believe about Christ and cross and resurrection, everything that we believe about how it is that we move forward into the world. We do all of that as members of a Trinitarian, Trinitarian tradition. Super important that we take at least one Sunday and talk about it specifically. Now, here's what I'm not gonna do. I'm not gonna draw you a diagram of God. And it's not that those things aren't at some level helpful. I don't think they're ultimately helpful because it's hard to ultimately draw God. And so you may have seen uh, various and sundry images, and I'm not gonna do that today because I'm not sure what we're talking about on Trinity Sunday today is the design of God as much as it is the core essence of a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Maybe you know this. There is nowhere in scripture an explicit statement saying God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is actually something that we have arrived, it's an opinion that we have arrived at having read scripture for thousands of years now and recognizing that we have moments when we hear from God the Father. We have moments when we hear from God the Son. We have moments when Jesus is very explicit that he has this contact with and is one with the Father. But we also have moments in Scripture when Jesus says, and I am one with this spirit, and so we have this third entity. And so over the years, the best of Christian thinkers have said, you know what God is? God is this relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we have arrived at this doctrine of the Trinity, and yet it is, if not the most, one of the most foundational beliefs that we have. Because as a Trinitarian denomination and as a Trinitarian pastor, here is the thing. Before God is anything else, God is love and relationship. Now, it's not that you don't get to authority. It's not that you don't get to law, but before God is anything else, God is a working relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is love. God is relationship. God's first move is love. God's last move is love. And by the way, all the moves in between, love. And so we want to be differentiated. I want you to be able to tell that we are of a tradition that understands God first and foremost to be a God of love, and then you get to power and authority, as opposed to other traditions, and they exist, who start with God as power and authority, and then God commands you to love. We're not those people. We're the first people. Who say that God is first and foremost love. And all God's Trinitarian people said, Amen. Oh, That's not bad. That's pretty good. Now, it's not easy. If you have grown up believing that God is first and foremost power and authority. It's not easy to make that transition from that camp to the Trinitarian camp. Not easy now. And not easy way back When? When it was the likes of when it was the likes of Nicodemus. All the way back in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the ruling council, somebody who would have been deeply schooled in theology, a particular kind of theology. He was deeply enough schooled to recognize that when Jesus talked and walked and, and did all that Jesus did by in the process of being Jesus, he recognized that there was something different, not just about Jesus' activity, but because of Jesus' message and Jesus' embodied message. And so he goes and he takes some time at night to say to Jesus, you're different. I noticed something very different about you. Let's talk about what that difference is. Among the things that Jesus says to him, truly, I tell you, no one can see this kingdom that I'm talking about without being born from above, without giving a significant restart. Perhaps your Bible says born again. That's okay, I think the better translation is born from above, but born again kind of works here too because no matter what we translate it to say, it all means you need to make a different start. You need to have a different beginning place, birthplace of faith. Nicodemus, obviously puzzled by all this, says, yeah, I am old and I've believed what i believed for a long time. How can a guy like me be born again? I don't think Nicodemus actually believed that he would somehow be expected to enter again into his mother's womb. I think that was a way for him to say, how can I do this over How do I start from scratch? How do I move into what we're calling today this Trinitarian kingdom? And Jesus' response ultimately is, yeah, the Spirit can kinda do some really amazing things. The Spirit can really do some amazing things. By the way, the Spirit can still do some really amazing things. If sitting where you are, you feel it, you can kinda feel it in your chest, oh my goodness, I think I've been raised in something other than a Trinitarian a tradition. I think, I think, this may be what you're saying to yourself, probably not out loud, I think that I have always believed that God was something before God was love. I think maybe I have more in common with Nicodemus and Nicodemus' understanding of God and theology than I do with Jesus and Jesus' understanding of God and theology. Maybe you two, like Nicodemus, feel like this is a chasm too far for me to jump across. I don't know how to get from here all the way to over there. Then hear what Jesus said to Nicodemus, who was saying, I don't think I can get from all the way here, from here, all the way to over there. Jesus said to Nicodemus, yeah, I know. The Spirit will have to carry you across this divide, across this chasm, and the Spirit is to this day still strong enough to carry Pharisees into the kingdom of the Trinity. It's good news for at least three of you. It's good. So in trying to tell and describe for Nicodemus this new kind of kingdom, this new way of understanding God and mission and ministry and even this Jesus character, This is when Jesus says in verse 16, you've heard this, for God so loved the world. This is a love issue. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have a boundless, eternal sort of life. In verse 17, which I think sometimes does not get its due because verse 16 is so incredibly popular, but look at this, you guys. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world. but in order that the world world might be saved through him. Man, some Christians still are hoping that God might reconsider that one. You sure, God, because it feels like God that maybe what we should do is condemn parts of the world, maybe even eliminate parts of the world via the rapture, and preserve kind of a holy huddle But here's the Savior saying, no, 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 God's core essence and the Savior's core essence and the Spirit's core essence, not to mention the mission of all of the above, is to save it all, not condemn it all, but to save it all. I'm going to read it again because I want to make sure that you hear it. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn those who aren't like you or don't like you, don't believe like you, don't look like you. God did not send his Son into the world to prove you right and them wrong. God sent his Son in order that all of you might be saved from something. That the whole world, whole world would be saved. Okay, how? Okay, welcome to Trinity Sunday. Here's how. Here's how God saves. By making room in God's self for us, all of us. In other words, God saves through love. Are you okay with that? <laughs> As we move to our passage here, I'm going to read in verse 12. You see the slide in front of you starts a little bit after that. Paul is taking up the same message and mantle that we've heard Jesus take up. Brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh. We don't have to do what our bodies tell us to do to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Whew. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. Okay, a little bit of background stuff, and and I'm going to make an educated guess about some of of what was going on in Paul's mind here. Paul, who himself, like Nicodemus, was a self-proclaimed Pharisee. In fact, Paul said, I'm a Pharisee's Pharisee. Paul said, I've had all the best schooling and he had when we think he was top of his class. He really, really studied his own faith, the Hebrew faith, deeply and was gripped by it, so gripped by it that he held those beliefs so tightly and brutalized other people who didn't believe like him for a time while he was Saul. And then love captured Saul, turned Saul into Paul. And changes not only his message, but his understanding, hear this, changes his understanding of God. And gave him lenses to look back on his own Hebrew history and see some evidence that perhaps he didn't see before. For example, here's what I believe and many of us believe is going on in Paul's mind. Paul was never very far from the story of the Exodus. We're not going to tell the whole story, but there's a part of it I want you to latch onto today. The story of the Exodus, a good gospel story where God wrestles God's enemy to the ground and liberates God's people so that they can be God's people, right? So God wrestles Pharaoh to the ground. And he liberates these people, at least for a time. They start running, and they run up against the Red Sea. And now Pharaoh, who is somewhat recovered, is angry and closing in. So you remember what happens? God actually parts this Red Sea. They walk across. Their armies try to follow. The sea collapses on top of the Egyptian armies. And on the other side of the Red Sea, the people of God are not only safe, they are different. Here's what I mean. On the wrong side of the Red Sea, they still understand themselves as uh, coerced employees of the Egyptian empire. They're slaves. They're slaves living in constant fear of disappointing their master, living in constant fear for their lives. They were slaves. But on the right side of the Red Sea, When those ties to the pharaohs and those ties to the Egyptian empire are now severed, watch this, very important, on the other side of the Red Sea, their identity changes. No longer slaves, but children of God. Their sense of community changes. They're no longer parts, unimportant parts, of the Egyptian empire. They are now members of the family of God. And their vocation changes. What they were before on the wrong side of the Red Sea, here's what they were. They were brickmakers. Slaves. Brickmakers. On the other side of the Red Sea, they get this new vocation. And it is to put skin and flesh on the reality of the essence of God in the world. Because they are Israel. The people of God. The children of God. Now, Paul has always got this motif operating in his mind and imagination. And in fact, this is how he understands what happens in the cross and in the resurrection. This time, God wrestles God's enemies to the ground, only it's not an Egyptian pharaoh. It is sin and death. Sin and death that were holding all kinds of people, like us, in captivity. Sin and death, or the fear of death. But on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, we're different. Liberated from the tyranny of sin and death, we're different in terms of identity. We're children of God, again. In terms of community, we're parts of the body of Christ. We're different in terms of vocation. Here's what we do. We put skin and flesh, skin and flesh, on the reality of God's presence in the world. Do you remember this? This was last week. Jeremy and Lori Lamb stood right here. And Jason and I were honored to be a part of the dedication process. Now, what you may not know, you probably, if you, were, if you listened, you probably did, that they were actually officially and legally adopted into Jeremy and Lori's family two days before. Two days before. And now King and Jesse and Aubrey, they are... The three littlest lambs. (laughs) I had to do that. I love that. Yeah, I had to do that. But here's the thing. King, Jesse, and Aubrey are, in fact, legally and in every way, members of Jeremy and Lori's family. They are sons and daughters of Jeremy and Lori Lamb. Do you understand that? Adopted. No less son and daughter than Jeremy and Laurie's biological children. No less. Not in the eyes of the law. Shouldn't be in our eyes. Not in the eyes of Jeremy and Laurie Lamb. They now have five children because they adopted King and Jesse and Aubrey. By the way, we need to be diligent and recognize that King and Jesse and Aubrey are the children of Jeremy and Laurie Lamb. Amen? Adoption. In other words, Jeremy and Lori went way out of their way to go get Jesse and King and Aubrey. They went way out of their way to grab them, scoop them up, and draw them in. They went through a lot of steps, and it's taken months and years to get to this point where they could finally be understood, the three kids, as children of Jeremy and Lori Lamb. But hear me say it again, and I know you know this, but I'm trying to make a point here. I know you know this, but these three, King and Jesse and Aubrey, are in every way members of the Lamb family. In every way. Because Jeremy and Lori went and got them. Jeremy and Lori went and got them. Like God went and got you. I hoped it would have more impact than that. So I'm going to step back and I'm going to try to say it again. I went through that whole lamb thing so that I could say it at the end in the exact same ways that Jeremy and Lori went way out of their way, put in all of the extra effort. It cost them in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of ways. But they did all of it happily and gladly because they wanted to celebrate their inclusion into the family. And so the God of the universe, represented as Father, Son, and Spirit, has gone way out of God's way to get to wherever you happen to be to draw you in and say, now you are mine too. Oh, much, 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 much better. When we cry, Abba. Now that's an interesting word, we'll come back to it. When we we cry, Abba, Father. It is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit. It just sort of fits and you just kind of know it down deep that we are children of God. And if children, this is important, and if we're really children, if Jesse and Aubrey and King are really children, then there is a sense in which they will inherit. They will inherit what Jeremy and Lori have someday. And we, if children of God, and we are adopted as we might be, then we too are now heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, to take up the family name means that you find yourself and you find your life and you find your meaning within the family. You find your sense of vocation within the family. Yeah, which probably means that much like this Jesus character, we're going to face some opposition, if not out-and-out suffering for having been included in this family. But we also, having been included in this family, will enjoy glory will be part of the way part of the process whereby the reality of the loving God is made visible that's what that word glorified means is made visible it's made visible that's the family business that's what we do that's the family business that's what we do we make the reality of a loving God visible unless we don't but that remains the family business This is a very important painting, y'all. Andrei Rublev, (laughs) hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, painted this. It is understood by now to be one of the oldest metaphors for the Trinity. One of the oldest metaphors for the Trinity. Father, Father, Son and Spirit, and this painting demonstrates. Now, no, 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 no diagram and no piece of art is going to finally and fully capture God. Does everybody get that? Okay, then allow your imagination to be funded and fueled by this image, as it has for so many for all these hundreds and hundreds of years. They are gathered around a table, and at tables. At tables. Hopefully, you'll experience this today after church. We experience relationship, connection, mutuality. We make room for the other. Perhaps we've even cooked for and we serve the other. Really good things happen around tables. That is the case now, and that was assumed to be the case way back when. Father, Son, and Spirit all gather around the table of fellowship enjoying one another, making space for the other, cooperating with the other, in constant connection and dialogue with the other. Now here's what's interesting. Oh wow, it works, okay. This ancient painting, see right here? There's really good evidence that right there on this painting, you see I've kind of circled it here? There's a residue on there. There's residue on this original painting. And it seems to be that there was something stuck to it a long time ago. And here's our best guess is what was stuck to it years ago. A mirror. You know why a mirror? So that you would look at it. And guess what you would see? You'd see yourself. At the table. With the father, son, son. In the spirit. In other words, this ancient painting—this Andre Rublev guy—really gets God. (laughs) He really gets the Trinity, because a, a proper understanding of the Trinity never stops with God. It always includes you and me. A Trinitarian God makes a place in God's heart for you for me, I still like the language. I don't want us to lose it. Have you accepted Christ into your heart? Have you accepted this God into your heart? I want us to keep that. But I would like for us to add to it. And here's the line I'd like for us to add to it. Do you realize that you have been accepted into God's heart? Do you realize that much like King and Jesse and Aubrey God has made room for you in God's heart. And as God has made room for you in God's heart, here's what happens. Your sense of identity can now be changed. You belong, according to scripture, Now you can quibble, but you won't be quibbling with me, you'll be quibbling with the likes of Paul and Jesus himself, but you belong at that table as much as Jesus does. Remember what Jesus said to Mary, right? The morning of the resurrection, hey, 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 I'd love to stick around here, but you're going to have to let go of me because i got to go back to my father and your father, my God and your God. Man, yes, have you accepted this God somehow into your heart, but maybe at least as important is this question have you accepted that God has accepted you into God's heart? You're adopted. You're adopted. You're adopted. God went way out of God's way. To get wherever you were, to make room. Hey, everybody, scoot back. I want to make room for this one, and that one, and this one, and that one. You've been invited to that table. You're welcome. You fit. You belong. You're adopted. If you're helping us today, come and help us set this table, and may this table in some sense today be reminiscent for you of that table. May your imagination fire just long enough for you to consider that there may still be some semblance, some hint of a mirror on this picture, and I would invite you today as you approach this table to look and see that you are in fact welcome and adopted By God Himself. Heavenly Father, bless these elements. And today, God, may they have even more meaning for us. Help us to see how it is that in our hands we hold these tangible expressions of how far God went to receive us to God's self. Broken body. And shed blood. This was a costly decision that God made to adopt us, to make room for us. And yet, God did it. God continues to make room. Help us to see that to be the case today, God, as we approach the table today. And as we sense the tangibility of the bread, may we sense the tangibility of our being received and adopted into your family. If you are visiting with us today, we take communion each week by intention, which means we kind of get the whole body involved, your whole body, our collected body. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand to your feet, exit your pew to the left, and then to come forward with your hands cupped to receive this piece of bread. Someone will snap off a piece of bread and place it into your cupped hands and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. As you hear that line, as you receive that line today, let it be for you a reminder of the cost attached to God's desire to adopt. Don't eat it just yet, but take that piece of bread and dip it into the cup. When you do, that person holding the the cup will say, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you again. May you receive that as evidence of how far God went to make room for you. And then take and eat. And then, if you would, find a place to pray. Now you can go to one of these side padded altars. If you go to one of these side padded altars, we will assume that you are there for a prayer for healing. It doesn't matter what kind of healing you're in need of, we will pray that prayer with you. It might be a physical healing, But it might be emotional or relational. We'll pray that prayer with you and someone will anoint you with oil to remind you of God's healing presence. Pretty good prayer to pray on Trinity Sunday. Or you can come to one of these kneeling benches up front. And if you come up here, we won't assume a thing, but we will pray with you. And at some point, you will feel us touching you on the back of the head, the neck. And that will, again, be a tangible reminder of the presence of God that is with you and chooses you today. And this is the last week we will, for a little while at least, do the blessing. And someone will be back here, and someone will be over here. And they're going to pray that if you've gotten a blessing already this particular season, and they will say similar things to what you've heard, but I've asked them to include somewhere in the liturgy, whether it's the only thing or just the last thing that is ever said, I've asked them to say to each of you, you are adopted. And some of you perhaps need that reminder, that reminder of where you belong and where you fit. Heavenly Father, Bless these moments for us now and remind us that we are, in fact, welcome. In your heart, we're welcome at this table. So on the night that he was betrayed, that our Savior took bread, blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you, and every time you eat of it, remember me. Later on, he would take the cup, He held it up before them and said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, and every time you drink of it, remember me. All across the sanctuary now, if you would stand to your feet, exit your pew to the left. If you would like to be reminded of your baptism, there is a place here for you to do that as well. But come forward now with your hands cupped. These are the gifts of God meant for the people of God.